You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Author Jack Casey joins the program today. He's the author of The Royal Green and the subsequent books that followed it. You can go ahead and check out everything on his website, which I link to in the show notes because I love you all. Jack, uh, welcome to the program. I got to say, looking at the world, not today, but looking at the world like the past 20 years, yeah. it's like every... Every other day, there's something new to be terrified by. And the post-apocalyptic genre, which your series falls into, it, it, it follows the, um, the regular dystopian trope, but it adds more fantasy elements to it, which I think people will really enjoy. But the reason why I brought you on tonight is because um, I, was, I was watching South Park with my fiance about a week and a half ago. We were watching the first, uh, first couple episodes of the new season. And she went ahead and said, you know what, like, South Park is still funny, but it seems to have, to have lost a lot of its, um, a lot of its luster, because the real world that it used to be a satire of, it still is, it's just so much more ridiculous than South Park. So I, I'm curious, <laughs> yeah. and I, I want to I take a piece of your mind and really dive into this. As a writer of fantasy, as a writer that writes books about people rising up against tyrannical governments and everything else, are you afraid that the mainstream media is going to put you out of business? <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny that, especially when I wrote uh, The Royal Green and its sequels many years ago, you know, I published them over the last few years, but there I was back in the day writing about my hopes and fears for what might happen or what could happen in these hypothetical scenarios. And then to be watching them happen in real time <laughs> years later, as I've now published them. Um, it's uh, on the one hand, I feel a little vindicated. Like maybe I was onto something with these ideas and these stories, these hopes and fears I kind of channeled, uh, you know, into, um, but then also, yes, the, you know, on the one hand, it does almost feel like a calling to step up and do the things I, I write about. And I think we're all feeling this calling to go fight the real world battles. I think that's part of why we have fiction and write fantasy and have these, these uh, made up scenarios. Cause I think they teach us something about reality and, and helps hopefully give us courage in the real world version of these things to, to face them, to get through them, to deal with them, to, to think back on your, your heroes or characters and how they handled things and what they did to try and be brave. So um, that's all I can hope is that if it's inspiring me in writing it, that it will inspire people who read it too. I, I love, I love dystopian fiction for the same reason. I love like the zombie genre because uh-huh. it, it kind of, it all starts from the point of everything that you wore in your life 
is wiped away and you're this blank slate. And now, you know, the regular person can be a hero in a world where otherwise it wouldn't have never happened. It's almost like they skip a few, cha- they, they skip a few parts of the hero's journey and they go straight to the part where shit's just hit the fan, whether they saw it coming or not. But um, it, it's always been one of those things that has uh, c- caught my eye because it, it's so weird because and I take I take the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, for example, uh, two franchises I used to absolutely love, but now I can't fucking stand them because of the people who are the loudest talking about them. And <laughs> they're th- those fictional examples for the real world. So, you know, on, on one side, you've got the Liberty side where we're looking at Katniss fighting against, um, you know, right. mono state and everything else. And, you know, standing up for individual freedom and everything. And then you've got Harry Potter where they're going up against the bureaucracy and right. kind of showing how these institutions that were designed to help keep man free are now trying to keep man restrained. And then mm-hmm. you've got the other side where it's like, they see almost the exact same thing that we do. They're taking the exact same lessons as we do except they're using them to be fucking terrible people. <laughs> you know what this is? To be right? pro state and pro government. Yeah. They, they twist they it almost, into like a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they take it and they just are like, you know what the world needs? A stronger central government. Yeah. You know what we need? We need to go ahead and crush our opponents into dirt so they can never resist us. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it's, it's amazing that, um, that yeah, these these what should be naturally pro freedom, pro liberty ideas get twisted and warped into pro authoritarian ones, and uh, it's like it's it's right there. You 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 can see, <laughs> and I don't know if that's just because people are. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I know I was frustrated when I would watch something about you know, you know, rebels fighting against you know systems of oppression and things. And then come to find out that the writers or authors or producers, whoever, you know, their political views were completely opposite of the, of the things they were producing and, and making money off of. And so I, I knew as I went on my own sort of political, spiritual, philosophical quest in writing these when I was younger, I started them when I was 17, um, you know, and, and didn't publish them for like until 10 years later, um, when I was going through my journey of asking those deep questions and figuring stuff out. You know, I ended up as a person who was more freedom oriented, as someone who who cared more about these things by by expressing them through through these stories and things. And it's just it just blows my mind that there's people who produce all this you know pro freedom content in their fiction, but in their personal views are so opposite. And I figure, hey, if I can be one more storyteller out there who where where when you buy it and read it and enjoy what the characters believe in, you know that the guy who wrote it also stands by those ideals and actually cares about the same things. And I hope that would uh, encourage people who are reading it that I'm, that I'm with you. <laughs> where would, where would you say the, the dystopian future genre kind of started? Because I, I kind of look at it coming from George Orwell's 1984, because this is really one of the first times where a mainstream book has taken the idea of like a post present world where we're currently at, and taken mm-hmm. into a state where it's our world, but it's a future version of our world, complete re- re- completely removed from what we've grown up with and what we've come to know. And what has always frustrated me about uh, conservatives that look at Orwell and libertarians that really elevate Orwell, uh, I think they do so justifiably. 
I think he was uh, obviously a visionary of the world to come. But, you know, the the one thing that's always been kind of a disconnect, and um, I think it was in his uh, in his short book on writing, is the fact that Orwell was a socialist. It was the fact that Orwell was didn't have a problem with this idea of a large state, which was definitely integral to the lives of the individual. It's just that he didn't like the fascists. It's that he wasn't a fan right. of the communists. Just that and, flavor of authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah. It's ironic, right? Like I said, it's 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 disappointing when those of us who are invested in this fight and these ideals that call out all forms of authoritarianism, whether it's socialist or fascist or nationalist or whatever version you want to dress it up in, even just democracy itself is authoritarian, you know, in nature. Um, that uh, that yeah, that that there's people who can write. It, 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 maybe that says something about people where sometimes the things we write about have better ideals than what many people are able to live up to or actually fully grasp or apply to the real world, you know, um, almost like we, we bring out our better ideas ourselves in our fiction or in this creative art form. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the same could be said of me too, where I, I project what I would like to be more of in, in my characters and stories, but, but yeah, it's, um, it, it is frustrating that, that, you know, there isn't as much consistency in that regard. You know, when we have these great stories that warn us and teach us great things and then, you know, they don't always add up to the people who made them. I, I forget the name of the author. It was whoever wrote the Divergent series. And uh, I remember going to see the last of that franchises films that were actually like in theaters before they like canceled the whole thing and they were going to throw it on TV and do whatever. I don't remember. I think it was a uh, resurgent, which by itself is actually a pretty shitty movie, but I, I remember going and watching it because for like five minutes, libertarians really loved that movie. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, Oh, you know, this is against the idea of public education and you know, they're going against a caste system and everything else. And um, they were projecting a lot of their own views onto what the story represented. And then somebody went ahead and um, it wasn't Lois Lowry. No, Lois Lowry did the giver. Anyway, uh, somebody actually interviewed the author of the Divergent series and was like, you know, uh, you wrote this obviously, you know, a, a while back, but, you know, people are taking new meanings to the stories and everything. And she basically came out and said it was against like, you know, Tea Party authoritarianism <laughs> and like, you know, this this backwoods conservatism that would bring us into like, oh, you know, a, a fascist state and everything. And I'm just like, well, that took a turn I really didn't imagine yeah. because I didn't see the same thing. And, you know, in, in a way, it's almost like, who do you think who who do you think is right? when it comes to interpreting the fiction. And I understand that's kind of a loaded answer, but do you think it comes down to the author's intention in terms of how they wrote it? That should be the definitive stance of which the reader takes the points of view from, or do you think it matters more what the, what the culture does with the story itself? I do, you know, and to be fair, yes, even in my case, I'm not necessarily as, you know, uh, as great or hero because I'd want to be as some of my characters, but, but, um, but, but it, it, I at least like to think that I know who the good guys and bad guys are in, in real life. And so I know in my case, I like that my views, I think, align very clearly with what I write about. But right in the case of those where it doesn't align, it does beg that question. I, and, and I do think I do think it's evidence that 
um, the truth about our ideas is so self-evident that it emerges in mediums and in art forms that their creators and authors didn't even necessarily intend. And maybe that's because there's something so true about what we believe in that even people who, who, you know, write things trying to say the opposite accidentally support what we believe in, you know, it's almost like a Freudian slip. Yeah. And maybe it's because, right. Like, they're, they're, you know, whether it's the brainwashing or the, just the culture they grew up in, they're applying a different lens to it, but there's something maybe like a fundamental truth to what we talk about and believe in that by necessity, almost like a mathematical equation, it just appears in reality all the time. We see the truth of it. We see what happens when people are free versus when they're not. And that, that, that reality is so powerful that it bleeds into everything that even people trying not to say that accidentally you know, which to me, I think shows that what we talk about, that's, that's part of the evidence for why it's so true about human nature, about, you know, how things work, because it keeps showing up even accidentally everywhere we see it. And for those willing to see it and who understand and apply it to reality can go, oh, okay, just like in this fictional form, here's the reality form of what's going on. And um, it is, it is funny that, that uh, it's, it's sort of inevitable all paths lead to uh, to liberty, I think, in the end. Yeah, and what what I think I've kind of figured out, and I, I could be wrong about this, I feel that when it comes to dystopian writers, they're always writing their future disaster stories government from a reflection of where we're at or where they are at currently. Um, Orwell wrote this, obviously, you know, post-World War II, but really in mind he was thinking of Franco, he was thinking of Mussolini, the, the fascists of Europe, and, um, you know, others were writing uh, based off, you know, whether they were reflecting the Vietnam War or, you know, Nazi Germany. And he had some writers who, who like to say that George Bush was the representative of their bad guy and that type of stuff. And then you have, uh, you know, I, I remember reading Glenn Beck's Agenda 21, and it was um, it, it was a book that was largely uh, trying to create a caricature of the Obama administration. So I feel like that kind of taints it because what they're doing is they're they're creating almost a cartoon version of the government of which they're currently against. But when you do that, you end up creating something which tells you more about what you fear um, from other people than what you fear in, in in terms of what's in front of you right now. And I think that's why dystopian genre you know, type books and stories and movies and shows. I think that's why they always get a very mixed audience. And what I've really hated about a lot of the stuff that has come out recently is that what they did was they completely picked a side. They went ahead and said, we don't want the left or the right to both claim this movie. We're going to go ahead and be very explicit about the people we're going up against. And a bunch of TV shows and some recent books I tried picking up, um, they almost if they if they came out in the past, you know, five, six years, they're almost always pointing to Trump. Right. Like like through the lens of current events, they kind of they they date the references or what they're going for, right? Which which can work if you're if you're going for political satire, like 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 I, I have a political satire thing I'm working on too, but but when you're trying to tell something more timeless or applicable to any future authoritarian scenario, right? You, you got to hit on ideas or themes that could work in in a number of of scenarios, not just the current political climate, but uh, th- those timeless 
truths or principles or, or concepts that, that you're going to be able to apply to not only your current situation, but to future readers too, who look back and go, oh, wow, this is similar to what I'm going through as well, because there's something very true about liberty versus authority, no matter which version it takes or you know, who the actors and costumes are. When, when you were writing your first book, The Royal Green, where was your headspace? Like, where were some of the things that you were getting your inspiration from in terms of like creating your antagonist and everything? Thank you. Yeah. I, um, and maybe, it, maybe for those that haven't picked it up and folks, you can go ahead and check out the show notes. I've linked to all of Jack's books and, and his website as well. Um, give, give us kind of a background as to the plot of the book and then kind of jump on that. that sure. Question. Yeah. Yeah. The basic premise, like we're saying, kind of Post-apocalyptic, although in, in my case with this story, it kind of fast-forwards the clock an extra, you know, thousand years, um, as though society had a reset and there was a new society that formed, right, over over many centuries. And so, um, you know, you have, you have some characters who are um, trying to dig up records or technology or understand things about their past and who the ancients were for them. Um, and, and to have the freedom of, of information and knowledge and speech and discussion to figure out, you know, what, what once was and then what could be with society and, and making it better, right? And then you have the people in charge, the vested interests, the people who, who want to suppress that information, um, you know, so you have, you have the, the kingdoms being ruled by this queen who's very authoritarian um, and she wants to control the amount of information or records people have of things of the past. Um, and then you have this Duke who's, you know, sort of this uh, rebellious but but peaceful guy who wants to diplomatically try and awaken people and get them to see better ways of doing things. Um, but he's also, you know, worried that he may have to resort to, to you know, some kind of civil conflict if, if push comes to shove. Um, but the story focuses on on their their uh, their two children, the 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 son of the queen, the prince, uh, Prince Jadian. He, he sees, you know, the problems with his, his mother and whatnot. Um, so he doesn't really want to be prince. He's the reluctant prince, but he also doesn't want to leave it in her hands either. So he's trying to figure out how do I take over, but make things better than she's ruling, right? How to be less, you know, um, authoritarian a ruler. And, uh, and then you have the Duke's daughter, Carathiel, who, um, you know, while her father is wanting freedom and stuff, she's worried about his, his potential more violent, you know, revolutions or um is worried that he's going to neglect other parts of their culture or society like their religion and, and other things that um she's afraid will be lost along with the monarchy if it's overthrown so you have this political tension drama kind of a the the prince and duke's daughter sort of romance spies kind of um uh, tension there um and that's kind of the premise but as far as what you said about headspace and the villains what i was thinking at the time I started when I was 17, but I wrote most of it when I was like around 21. Um, and on the one hand, I, I, at, at the start of it, I had much more authoritarian views. I, I kind of had a more neoconservative hawkish. I, I, I was about to say what, what, what we consider authoritarian now is nothing to what we consider yeah, like, you know, a decade ago. Yeah, fair enough. A right? decade ago, they were saying, <laughs> we just want people to have health care. Now they're saying, if you don't wear a mask, we're going to take right, your children. Right, right. Yeah, no, my, my version was the hawkish, pro, you know, war on terror kind of militant patriotism, you could say, mm-hmm. um, was kind of my headspace. And as I started writing the story, it was me honestly asking 
introspectively about my own views and putting them on trial, right? Casting my own views and the characters who held them as the villains and having this prince who's asking questions about those worldviews and saying, well, is this really the right way to rule? Where does authority come from? Does it really come from any of us? You know, are, are, is there a better way of doing things, you know, and, and, and um, by exploring that and, and framing those questions with those characters and, and their journey, it transformed me. And, and, you know, by the end of this thing, I, I realized I was libertarian um, and had become so through that process, but, but it started from um, being willing to play with those ideas in that sort of fictional dream space, have those ideas kind of represented the characters and their beliefs and then clash with each other and those, those, you know, questions back and forth. So it really was an organic process of my own development. Um, so that by the end, when I kind of knew more clearly what I believed and why, and could see it play out in the course of the events and characters. Um, that's when I finally was like, okay, I, I want to publish this and, and, um, and, and then kind of show that journey. And hopefully others will be on a similar path with it too. If, if, if the average reader, right. Who doesn't already necessarily share all the same views as me, but um, just is there for the good storytelling and the character drama and, and the, the cool swords and magic and all that stuff that they will um, by going through that, kind of also ask those deep questions go oh yeah maybe this doesn't make sense to do things this way maybe there's better ways um so that's my hope with that i I feel like with fiction now you've got two types of audiences the ones that want to be entertained and then the ones that are counting how many gay characters you have (laughs) yeah which which i I, I don't have a problem with that but but it's like you know they're 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 keeping score so that way you could never win because they never (laughs) wanted you to win to begin with so so i guess it's safe to say that definitely uh, when, when you were drafting the book and kind of figuring out where you wanted the story to go, it was definitely story first message. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, in, in fact, as I got ready to publish over the last few years, I remember I'd look back on my, you know, I had the drafts, I edit and edit and, and all these things. But um, I remember thinking, you know, cause it's true. There were some progressions, right. Where I knew that what I wrote was reflective of how I felt at the time of each writing but by the time I was publishing it many years later, I had evolved and changed. I thought, how much do I go back and correct and update it? And how much do I leave as is to preserve that voice? And so that was a conversation kind of with my current self and my past self for that, in a sense. Um, but yeah, as far as the appealing to woke stuff like the rest now, I, I'm, I thankfully, there was, a, uh, there was a temptation at one point to maybe try to do something like that, you know? But, but I, I very quickly was like, no, the, this is my story. These are my characters you know, I'm, I'm a white male author, deal with it. Okay. I've got, <laughs> I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm not going to try to um, score points there. And hopefully I, I think that then characters you write, whether or not they're of whatever, check the box, you know, scorecard um, because it's character and story driven, they'll just be better. And I think we see that in our, our, you know, our stories we see where they're trying too hard to be on message rather than just, you know, make people care about these characters, make them interesting, make them cool, make them fun, make them conflicted, make them vulnerable, make them, make them human in every way so that you don't really care anymore what their gender is or skin color or the rest. You just know that you identify with, care about that person and their story arc and what they're going through. And and that's going to transcend all the other, uh, you know, the other stuff. So, yeah, I, I, my, uh, my second book was my first um, fiction 
piece I wrote, and it's uh, it's how to succeed in politics and other forms of devil worship, and it's basically a, a, a comedic black comedy about the life and times of Governor George Wallace. So I, I give you an accurate history of the of him, but then I also have this parallel story that takes place in modern times, where you're paralleling the politics of what we consider the good days to the politics of now, and what you basically see is that politics has always been corrupting. It's always brought mm-hmm. out the worst in people. And that doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on when your ultimate pursuit is power. You're willing to do anything and everything you can to obtain it. It, it doesn't care who you are. All it cares about is, um, you know, what, what more damage it could do to everyone that you disagree with. And, yeah. um, you know, like I, I could I could bash on, on on the wokest mob and everything else. But I mean, I, I really do think that a lot of people kind of miss the forest for the trees when it comes, especially from an artist's view, such as your own, because oftentimes now and you see this in libertarian conservative circles, it's like, oh, well, you know, we need our conservative version of this. We need our right wing version mm-hmm. of that. And I'm like. If you're thinking from it that way, the first thing you sacrificed was the art. I really like Ayn Rand's books. I love Anthem. I've re- I've read Atlas Shrugged several times. I try and read mm-hmm. The Fountainhead every year. But, you know, <laughs> the, the thing is, like, she's not a great storyteller. And she's not great at character distinctions. And she's not great at character development. And that bugs a lot of people because they see that as an attack on the work itself. But the thing is, it's like those books are very much her crafting fictional situations that mirror a lot of the problems that we have in the world. But she treats the characters more like megaphones for her own ideas and less as actual characters that live in a in a fictional world. So and message always, first, or yeah, or, yeah, or kind of like um, what was it? C.S. Lewis's um, yeah, almost like allegories or things where it's like it's like yeah, it, it's it's a philosophical conversation being had through sorts of yeah. yeah, yeah Screw tape yeah. letters is not great fiction. Screw tape letters <laughs> is no. Screw tape letters is a great book. It's a great thing to read. I think everyone should mm-hmm. read it, but I would never say it's like on par. Right. Like, it doesn't take away the value of what you're reading. It's just, it, it's, yeah. It, it's no, not I, the, I feel the witch in the wardrobe. Right. Right. You yeah. know, and I know I, exactly I felt too, which is why exactly what, like I was saying, when I, when I realized what my political and other views were by the end of this thing, I, I, I had that moment of, I was like, should I go back and kind of re- Update, but then I looked back and I thought, you know, I could see the seeds there. I could see the dots that just hadn't been connected yet. And it was, it was already going towards liberty. It was already kind of in that vibe, but it was still kind of figuring out some of how that, that made sense. And so I was like, no, exactly. I want it to be preserved because clearly I wrote it wanting these characters to be real and wanting their journey to, to feel real and, and um, compelling. And then yes, and if that also leads you to the message and to the things that they learn, that's that's great. But yeah, yeah, it's true. You got to lead with: is it a good story? Are they good characters? Is the reader going to enjoy themselves um, on this journey rather than feel, you know, primarily lectured to or so forth? Because because if people want that, there's places to get that. There's places to get you know to have these philosophical intellectual discussions and debates and, and these sort of education-based things. Um, but when people read stories, they want to feel emotions. They want to feel moved. They, um, and, and I think too, there, there's, there's a lot of self-discovery in that process. And so I think like, like I was saying before, as a writer, I didn't always know exactly what I wanted to say yet, but I knew I felt things and wanted to express them. And 
let the characters kind of sort that out with each other. And so I know it was good for me to not know exactly everything I wanted to say going into it. And then kind of with the characters figure some stuff out. Um, Cause like I said, I started from this, you know, neocon right wing, you know, hawkish scorch the earth, um, you know, torture the captives mindset, which was pretty horrifying to, to be that kind of person um, at a young age for a time. And then to go from that to, this liberty loving person who, who now condemns all that. It's like that redemption arc for me, I think is what inspired my wanting to tell stories that played with that too. And, 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 and to be fully fair too, rather than make the good and evil and, and the conflict so black and white to show those nuances, those layers of like, yeah, a lot of the authoritarian, you know, people, they think they're the good guys. They think they're protecting people. They think that, they need to rule with an iron fist for the sake of the, there's a lot of people. Sometimes the villains really do think they are the heroes and, and it's, it's only in, um, you know, that, that process of discovering why what they're doing is wrong and how ineffective it is and how their worldview is warped or, or based on some kind of lie or something that I think, you know, that that's how I was turned around on my own views over time. And I think that's the only way we can win other people too. I, I think star Wars that. has done a, a really great job of that more recently than, you know, b- before the prequel saga, which gets so much shit from people, but I think more people are coming around to it now. It's this idea that when yeah. you watch a movie like, um, like a solo or rogue one, you realize, wait a second, the rebels, were the Confederacy back in the in in the in the prequel era and the Republic, which is now the Empire, where they, they were kind of the bad guys. Yeah, the Sith were mm-hmm. evil, but not everyone fighting for the trade trade federation or whatever, they weren't all Sith. And you know, there there's a there's a moment of dialogue in uh, Star Wars Rogue One where Cassian Andor, the rebel spy, is uh arguing of Jin Erso and he's like, You've been fighting these guys for five minutes. I've been fighting them my entire life. And what that basically <laughs> insinuates is that the hero of this story right now was the bad guy three movies ago. And it gets really well, complicated yeah. when you realize that, you know, he doesn't see a distinction between the stormtroopers now and the clone troopers back then. They were the same. And, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things where when you realize it, I, I think that's why so many, you know, explicitly political projects tend to fail because when you go message first story later, it, it's just not, not good. And I mean, yeah. I, I, I've read a lot of uh, Glenn Beck's books. I, I used to really be into his stuff, but I could never get his fiction. Because his fiction was almost so driven by the points he wanted to drive home, (laughs) it killed the story and it ruined it. And I think that was, you know, the issue I had with Ayn Rand, because when I read all her books the first time, I was like, oh, this is like the greatest thing ever. But then I had to ask myself on like the second or third reads, it's like, do I like this book because the story is good or do I like this book because – it's telling me all the things I want to hear. And in some cases, you know, like Anthem, I think Anthem still holds up as, as one of the best novellas of all time. I still love The Fountainhead. But I have a lot more of a, of a jaded view of Atlas Shrugged because Atlas Shrugged didn't have to be 20 million pages. It could have been like, you know, 
80 to 100,000 words maybe. And if it had just taken out a few of the characters and focused on the plot, she still could have gotten all her points out. But she didn't write Atlas Shrugs because she wanted to create the greatest fictional piece of all time. She wrote it because she wanted to create the Bible of objectivism. And, you know, when you when you try and get both of those things, they're not mutually exclusive. You end up sacrificing one part of it for the other. And I do think that, yeah, there's something about fiction and there's some I know when I write, at least there's there's some parts you plan ahead and try to organize. But there's a lot of it that surprises you. It's like you open a door to a little bit of. You know, you open that unknown and you let in a bunch of of just some chaos that then you then organize in great order from. And I think there's a, there's a slight randomness or slight unexpectedness that, that gives things a certain life or, and again, yeah, like these nuances that you, you wouldn't necessarily get or know when discussing ideas, but just come from the fact that people are flawed. Even the, even, like I was saying before, as much as I like to think, Oh, you know, I'm an author who, you know, uh, believes in the right things and is writing about the right things at the same time, you know, I don't live up to always the things I claim to believe in. I'm a flawed person. All of us are. And so when you have characters who, who aren't as good as the things you even wish yourself or others were, it, it, it adds kind of a, a complexity to people and why they think the way they do and how consistent they are or not. It's tough. You know, I mean, our ideals to live up to are tough and we try to, um, you know, we try to balance that sense of utopia and the sense of like how right things could be with also this kind of, but let's do the best we can to get there along the way. Right. And make the best of the situation. Right. We're in, you know, cause all of our principles, they can be so abstract. And if we could push some button to make them happen, we would, but since we can't, we're in this world with these messy people and these ideas and these, these, like these structures that already exist that we're trying to dismantle safely. And there's, there's, there's so much more complexity to the real world and into people that, yeah, I agree. I think reducing it to these, these um, perfectly defined ideals doesn't always capture the, the human spirit the same way. There's something where um, the slight messiness can, can do a lot in a story to, to give it realness and, you know, make it relatable too. I think, um, yeah, I, I think we We've all known when we felt like the villain at times, looking back, or the hero, and identifying with both, understanding both, I think is important. Yeah, and I mean, what what you mentioned about you know dealing with the fact that when you're writing these these fictional stories, you're dealing with you know messy people. That that's one of the hardest things about a good story because even if the plot isn't necessarily the most intricate, amazing thing ever, it's amazing what happens when you have genuinely interesting characters. And I think that's been one of the things that's been sacrificed in, in both you know modern literature and and, um, and and movies. Like you don't have many character driven films anymore. I, I criticize a lot of the Marvel films for that i'm a big comic book nerd and i don't see a lot of um the hero's journey even mentioned in a lot of films uh like you know they they follow kind of like the same marvel you know regular guy to superhero growth but you see that less and less with each of the new characters they've introduced 
And, um, you know, I, I, it, it's just like if you don't let the characters breathe, if you treat the characters like mouthpieces, not like people, everything else around them, like the, their whole world is going to suffer. I, I interviewed um, Chuck Dixon. He's a, he's a really famous comic book writer, and he wrote um, Batman and Punisher in the early 90s. He was the guy who cr- actually created the character of Bane, who people might know from The Dark Knight Rises. And uh, Chuck Dixon's a very hardcore Trump-loving Republican. I mean, he created the, the, the graphic novel version of Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer. And uh, he's a member of the NRA, and he's been blacklisted from the comic book industry because of his views, not because he did anything wrong, but because they want to keep conservatives out. But, you know, when you go back and read his Batman books explicitly, I, I asked him, what was it like to write Batman in the 90s when the whole comic book industry was trying to become very explicitly anti-gun? And he's like, I didn't let that affect my stories. But what I can tell you is that when there was a certain plot where I needed to go ahead and write uh, a monologue from Batman talking about why Batman will never use guns and what Batman thinks guns represent, I wasn't going to write Chuck Dixon's Batman. Or I was not going to make Batman a megaphone for my own beliefs. I had to write Batman as Batman. And Batman hates guns Mm -hmm. because Batman is traumatized because a gun took his parents. Right. So yeah. It would be disingenuous. It's true to the character, right? In it that would sense. be disin- yeah. It would be disingenuous to Batman the character, and it would be insulting to the audience that knows this character if I did that. Yeah. No, I, I like that, and, and this is kind of what you're getting at before, where like, does the, you know, do the creators or writers or something, you know, do they get to project their stuff? And, and I, I agree with your sentiment that the characters when the characters are well-written enough, they kind of are immortalized. And it's to the point where you would know if a character would or wouldn't say or do something because they're already so well-established and they already, I think that's why you see when certain things suffer. Uh, for example, like I, you know, it's a big fan of game of Thrones up until the last few seasons. And, and, um, uh, and, and, and that is me off. It, like right. Nothing else. Right. And, and that, and by the way, as far as vibes and stuff goes, I, I definitely think my story has a lot of the Game of Thrones kind of uh, vibes in the, in the sense that what I loved most about it was these redemption arcs. Like you'd see characters that you hated at the start, and then season two later, you're like rooting for them because you see what pain and suffering made them the way they are, and these these great, just these great higher concepts going on in there. And then, right, you, you see when the writing suffers later because the characters at that point were so well established and kind of real in the minds of viewers or readers for those of the books that to then betray what those characters are represent or how they would operate and think it, 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 it shows, it shows and people react to it because it, it feels like, like a counterfeit or like, you know, in, in that sense, I think characters do take on a life of their own independent of their, um, their author. And, and um, yeah, I, you know, in that sense, they, they kind of live on even once the, uh, the authors pass, but at the same time, right. Then there's people who will try to tell authors what they should and shouldn't, you know, do with their characters to fit some other message, right. Say the woke messaging or something else. And which of course I also rebel against that. Cause it's like, well, yeah, the, the readers in the, some, in some sense, you know, um, c- you know, control some aspect of, of that, but to, to push, a character, uh, an author or their characters to inauthentically cater to a certain message or, or political agenda. Right. It's like, that's not, it's not going to work unless it's organic from the character, unless it makes sense for that story or that character to do. So yeah, either way, whether it's, whether it's, you know, 
writers trying to mess with characters or readers trying to mess or, or disrespect characters. I think in the end, the characters will speak for themselves and you'll know when they're really talking or not. I, I can only imagine what, what like what, what fictional stories are going to be written about the lockdowns and the pandemic, because, you know, yeah. that's something that's actually started recently pandemic literature. But no, I, so two things on that one, Part of what um, was interesting when I published Royal Green, Royal Green came out in 2019. I started writing it in 2009, but I, I really wrote most of it in like 2012. And let's just say it deals with some themes and ideas somewhat similar to current events that um, are, are really interesting. Um, and so uh, to see that was, was kind of funny to me, like, wow, okay, this, this is timely with some ideas or concepts, not a perfect parallel, but, but similar ideas, um, the idea of taking advantage of, of sicknesses and things like that. Um, but now, right. But then in other ways, like we said, the story I wrote was written in a way where it's very, it's very in its own world, self-contained. It has hopefully a timeless application of ideas that you can apply to any situation. So the fact that it happened to line up with some stuff going on right now is kind of fortuitous, but not necessary. Um, but uh, like, but did now, the, did you see the new James Bond? Sorry, to interrupt. Oh no, I haven't did seen the see? new one. No, I'll, I'll spoil it for you. Okay, well, I'll spoil part of it. But <laughs> like, the, the main plot of James Bond is that this evil terrorist guy has built a a bio weapon that once it infects somebody, they're permanently infected. And if this virus, which is coded to kill somebody else, gets on you, if you get if you get within close contact with that person, they're gonna die. So basically, Bond gets COVID. And it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm, I remember sitting in the theaters in November when it came out. And I'm like, you know, this movie, I've been waiting for this movie for a while. It's like, it's like no time to die coming 2019, 2020, three more postponements in 2020. Now it's late 2021. And as I'm sitting there in the theater watching this, I'm like, I don't think they could have written this this today. And if they had, it would have been far more politically driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at least there it's like, oh, you know, like bi- this idea of guys creating, you know, germ warfare and bioweapons. It's been in all types of like action movies and stuff, but they were almost like way more explicit about how the danger of it was going to be. And I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, they they can't craft that story now without being almost polluting everything else that's happened. On the, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's why I lucked out in that I you know I wrote my the trilogy, which, which, which by the way, can be a, a bigger expanded series. If, if people do buy it and enjoy it and want to see more of that world of characters, it's, it's certainly um, open to more, but it is a self-contained story and trilogy that, that you can just read that and be done. So I was fortunate that it already had some parallels, but in such a way that was organic or natural to what it was saying and doing, right? Like when I wrote it before any of this happened, but separately, once I finished that, then I was like, well, now I just kind of want to have fun and poke fun at this whole pandemic and all that stuff. So I started a more political satire focus. Um, it's a short story. It's called WVW. And it's saying that if monsters took over like vampires, werewolves and witches and were, you know, pushing potions and all this stuff, it's basically just open political satire of current events. And it's very in- intentionally on the nose and satirical and, and funny and, 
dark and messed up. Um, and so it's and, been and fun a now price for that. If that's the intention, right, right. Where it's like very, it's like, Hey, this is what this is. So come, come enjoy this. So it's been fun to now write something that is deliberately trying to do that and very kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, right. Versus, versus the stuff that is, is works with current events because it's just telling a good story in its own, you know, separate sphere. Right. And so yeah. it's been fun to do both now where I can kind of have the intentional poking fun of current events, kind of satire just for comedic purposes and for, to help us all get through this, right. Just to laugh at it all together. Um, but then in, in the more kind of deeper stuff that I've been writing before, it's, it's cool that hopefully it has a kind of timeless um, application of things that can work in any of, of situation we find ourselves in, you know, there may be stuff in there that that will still happen. That hasn't even happened yet. That I don't even know which it'll be, but um, yeah, it's been fun to try out both, <laughs> both the on the nose, deliberate uh, satire. And then the uh, just the stuff that happens to line up and you're like, Oh, that's kind of similar. Hey, I mean, you know, reality could be way stranger than fiction. Yeah. It kind of is at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in writing, in, in writing my my second book, "Has Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship." I mean, you know, the the modern parallel story that follows the George Wallace story. You know, I tried to make that as like you know crazy and insane and drugged up as possible, but people were just horrified by the by by the actual historical cases that I wrote about and the real things that people did and said and things that occurred. And it's like, you know, sometimes you can't make up all the craziness. Uh, yeah. Jack, Jack to, uh, to wrap up the show, I, I do want to get your thoughts on this. Um, what it, It's not even limited to modern dystopian fiction. We're seeing this in comic book movies. We're seeing this in television. We're seeing this in, in so many different areas, comedy, dramas, you name it. It's almost this this drive for almost a soft authoritarianism in a lot yeah. of the characters, in a lot of the stories. And if the dystopian genre is a preview into what we're scared of now and how we solve it, I'm almost afraid that the dystopian books and stories that advocated for greater liberty that took this, you know, like a rebel alliance, for example, and tried to elevate this push for freedom and individual free will and self-autonomy. I almost feel like that's being replaced with collectivism, with a softer form of it, where it's not going to be Darth Vader and his, you know, black gloved fist, but it's going to be, you know, like someone like the, the the second president in the Hunger Games, who just basically becomes the first president snow in the Hunger Games <laughs> and everything else. But this time, Katniss won't be there to shoot her in the heart. She'll, she'll probably <laughs> yeah. say, vote for her, you're a bigot. Yeah, yeah, the king is dead, long live the king. Yeah, I, I you know, that's a theme too, right? How do we break these cycles of revolution, authoritarianism, revolution, like where, you know, these cycles of abuse and you know, maybe that's why writers like me and others will need to still be out there fighting the good fight, trying to tell stories that do a better job, hopefully, you know, and, and, and um, of conveying why breaking that cycle is key, that we can't just keep having, you know, replacing one villain with another. We have to figure out a way to to do better, be better, uh, create the culture and the sort of resistance to these systems even forming and maintaining a hold on us in the first place, you know? And I think it is hearts and minds first, you know, as much as we 
want the removal There's of that the George immediate Bush threat. indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Oh, um, yeah, it's my my previous uh, neocon roots speaking. No, um, <laughs> to uh, to <laughs> to just to to realize that for every mind we change. I mean, so much of this is in the mind, you know, that the power we hand over, once people decide, like we're seeing with civil disobedience, all the rest, we don't have to wait for elections and votes and in and, and the actual changing of systems, just changing people's minds about what is true or not, where authority even comes from, their own autonomy, their own freedom, that can shut a lot of this down faster than anything else. And, and you know, and I know for me, I, I was moved and, and changed in my ways by good stories, by, by people who could portray these things in a way that made me emotionally connected to the characters and things that happened to them. So I hope to just be one more voice out there do, trying to speak through fiction. And I also do plenty of, uh, you know, rants and posts just explicitly saying my views. So if you're looking for that, you can find that too. Um, but in case that's a little too, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, whatever, then, then I think the story form can actually do a lot more in the long run. There's a reason why story is the most honest form of communication amongst man, regardless of language and regardless of time. Jack Casey, thank you so much for joining the program today. If people want to connect with you, find your books and everything else you do. How could they do so? Thank you. Yes. Um, so jackcaseybooks.com, uh, the Royal Green series is there, those three books. And then of course, WBW, the little short story kind of teaser trailer for what could be a longer series. Um, and same with the Royal green. I, I, there's more I'd love to write. Um, and you know, if people read it and love it and tell me they want more and review it and stuff, um, I, I would love to keep telling stories, uh, to entertain us all those of us who already have a lot of these thoughts and views, but also to reach out to people who aren't yet quite like us and, um, you know, can go on that journey too. So here's, here's, a. Uh, Royal green and, um, to get you started, but yeah, Jack Casey books. Um, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, um, Twitter at F Jack Casey, um, an inside joke I've gone too far with, but I was about to say, like, that might not mean what I think you want it to mean. <laughs> Jack Casey, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining the program folks. Before I, you know, let you go. Conversations like this only get around because of your help. Please, if you haven't already, share the episode with Jack with a friend. Or maybe if you hate him, share an episode that you like. You know, I'm not picky. Yes. I, I put out as many episodes as I can to, you know, get the people you hate, the people you actually like. But if you want to go ahead and let people know how awesome I am, you can go ahead and leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Audible, wherever you're listening to the show across Al Gore's amazing internet. Get it across <laughs> to the world far and wide. As always, I'm Remsen W. Martinez. Be good, be safe. Good night.